Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tamrat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. Today on the pod, we'll start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's current in the world of romance. In this episode, we examine the relationship between Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly. What makes us interested in certain celebrities? We give you your regular reminder that Hitler was a nightmare to work with, and Chris learns about who Beyonce is. Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based romance from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. In this episode, we'll be talking about Emmanuel and Frigitte Macron, the story of a young crazy boy who knows everything, meeting the Madame Bovary of Amiens. Chaos ensues. I make some jokes in worse taste than usual, Naf reveals her bone-deep suspicion of political couples, and Chris learns about Rihanna. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Mary Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the people from our main love story. Naf teaches us about baguettes. I am the only one who's smart enough to marry a living person instead of a corpse, and I'm not sure Chris learns anything, except, of course, about baguettes. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. In this episode in particular, we discuss a sexual relationship between an adult and a minor at length. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. So, I want to talk today about two people who are in love and might not be in love anymore, but we're not sure yet. I'm talking, of course, about Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly. (laughs) Now, the first thing I need to ask you both is, do you know who these people are? I only know Megan Fox through the unfortunate New Girl replacement. I vaguely recall reading some stuff about... But I feel like I'm getting her mixed up with Angelina Jolie in terms of, like, was she drinking blood? Was she doing I, – I don't know what she was doing, but it was, like, that vein of things. Um, I've never heard of Machine Gun Kelly. I'm sure he is the person whose blood she was drinking, if indeed that I mean, did I, happen. I know that Megan Fox was in Transformers, and so I'm wondering, is Machine Gun Kelly a Transformer? These are all great questions, and I'm so glad you're asking me because I am your resident expert. So, Megan Fox, as noted, Transformers actress, of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Michael Bay version, (laughs) definitive. Um, Right. So, Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly. Now, Machine Gun Kelly is a singer. I have confirmed this. Do I know what music he plays? Does he play an instrument? No, I don't know. And we don't need to know about that right now. What we do need to know is that in 2020, they first go public in a relationship. Now, this was epic. They are both, how to describe, they are both extremely hot people, but in a way where they could be kind of Barbie dolls for kind of goth 
potential serial murderers. And I say that really as like a compliment. I think they're extremely attractive. Now, Machine Gun Kelly has like spiky platinum blonde hair, always wears great outfits that are not practical. Like you could never, like one of his most iconic outfits in my humble opinion is a purple suit that's covered in spikes uh, by Dolce & Gabbana. Amazing. I don't know how he sat down. He did also take his daughter to that award show, if I'm not mistaken. And I've always wondered about that. Megan Fox, actress, etc. So they get together and there's a huge profile of them, I think in GQ magazine, where they talk about how they first met because the internet got obsessed with them because they, they had all these like amazing social media photos where they're both just looking really hot and sullen. And yes, there was drinking blood, according to Megan Fox. So the Angelina Jolie comparison is apt. But this interview was incredible. So Megan Fox describes first meeting Machine Gun Kelly at this party she meets him she's drawn to him and she goes who are you and he goes i am weed i am weed i am weed i am weed and megan's weed, like weed is in a weed or weed is in pot believe maybe it's pot but it doesn't matter megan's like yes um and they become just attached at the hip at the wrist at one award ceremony they you, know, you she, imagine that he said it in the way that you said it like I am weed. I am or was it more like, I am weed? I think it was more ethereal. The way she describes it was that he came up to her and it was like, it was almost like he came out of a dream, right? I am weed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they begin this whole thing where they just are really looking hot together. At some point, she's chained him at an award show. They do, I watched this like unforgivably long video that I loved every minute of where they had to answer questions to see if they knew what their partner really liked. Um, I learned that Megan Fox, according to Machine Gun Kelly, which doesn't say much, um, is a nerd and reads a lot, which maybe we'll see. Um, so anyways, <laughs> slam down on Megan Fox here. And Megan, if you want to come on the show, kind of clear your name, no problem. Let us know. We are here for you. We are here for you. And you know what? I'm really here for you, girl, because recently Megan Fox. So there have been rumors swirling around that things might have been a little bit, you know, on again, off again. But they're such a volatile couple that who knows, right? That's just kind of their charm. That's kind of their brand. They're unpredictable. She posts an Instagram. First, she posts a video where she's burning a letter. <laughs> Telling who writes letters, who has fire now. We're in an economic crisis. You know what I mean? She also posts an Instagram where she's looking beautiful in a bathroom. And the caption is, you can taste the dishonesty. It's all over your breath. Is she talking about the bathroom design there? No. Um, so, Beyonce fans, please don't kill us. Chris is a white man. He does not know. It's from Lemonade, the album. I'm so embarrassed. It's You should be. I, mean, I feel that's my role here, basically, talking, to, to not know about Beyonce. If you need to cancel someone, Rachel and I did not say those words. That is Chris. We will send you his identifying characteristics whenever you need them. He's um, a tall white man. He's uh, very difficult to find. Um, and it's from the song Pray You Catch Me. So this is one of the best kind of angry, how fucking dare he songs, right? So everyone's like, oh my God, cryptic. What does she really mean? Meanwhile, <laughs> that Megan first stops following everyone except Eminem, Harry Styles, and Timothee Chalamet. And it's even better because Eminem, um, I, I want to keep calling him Magic Johnson Kelly. <laughs> I know that's not his name. I'm just going to say MGK from now on. MGK and Eminem have a very famous feud, according to BuzzFeed.com. I did not know about this feud, but that doesn't mean it's not famous. I'm old now. Um, so it seems like extra petty that, of course, she follows his enemies. And so I'm kind of like, what does he have against Chalamet? 
we will do an episode on Chalamet that's just me talking about how much I love him. Um, and what does he have against Harry Styles? Like, clearly she was following just his enemies. So she does, and then she deletes her entire account. Iconic. Then we get to Sophie Lloyd, who is in MGK's band. And suddenly everyone's like, oh my God, MGK cheated on Megan Fox with Sophie. Sophie releases a statement, which essentially begins, Sophie Lloyd's a professional and goes from there. She's just trying to earn her fucking money. She's trying to clock in and clock out, but the celebrity way. And now everyone's coming after her saying, oh my God, it's because of you that Megan Fox is so upset. She doesn't have an Instagram anymore, which is essentially just destitution. She has nothing. (laughs) What are your thoughts? This is the scenario this feels like to Mm -hmm. me. You're at a gas station. You're filling up your tank mm-hmm. and you there's a couple the tank beside you having like some real deep fight with some like real shit going on right you're just like okay all i want to do is just fill up the tank of gas and get out of here they're somehow roping in somebody else mm-hmm. at pump number three into it and it's becoming a thing and for me the, the immediate reaction is just like nope i want nothing to do with this like this is not what i came here for this is not my instagram purpose and i i I want out i want out i'm going to interject before chris gives his opinion by saying imagine that same scenario except those two people that you're watching fight are extremely beautiful and really kind of like unearthly hot and also they only get gas based on your interest in them, right? Like their careers, their ability to make money depends solely on your interest, on your input, on you. Every time you give an opinion, more gas goes into their tank, right? Especially for someone like Megan Fox, where, you know, we've given her credits kind of tongue in cheek. It's true that it, that it, Michael Bay movies are her big thing. And she's gone on record saying that Michael Bay was an incredibly abusive director towards her. Now, I don't I I actually think that Megan Fox is not a bad actor. I think she's not been given a chance to do much. Like in Jennifer's Body, I thought she was quite good. And I think and, and actually I will say that even though I was again laughing at myself for watching that whole interview with between them, she does she does seem like she's really she's smart. Like she has things to say. I always agree with why should we care? Because in fact, we shouldn't care about any of this. But I get why they need us to care. Because at this point, Megan Fox is a professionally hot person. And I'm not trying to minimize what she can or can't do. I just think that's the role that we've kind of pushed her into. And I have to assume that Machine Gun Kelly has fans because he does apparently play concerts. I did check (laughs) and I double checked. Someone must be listening to his music. I certainly don't know who it is, but he has enough money to wear designer clothing at all times, and he does look great all the time. Again, in a very kind of, he's an alien who comes from a spiky planet kind of way, but that's his thing. And so, yeah, so it's so I guess it's interesting to me, like maybe the currency of celebrity culture right now is you have to be really hot and gaunt looking, and you need to, and you need to kind of be able to capitalize on that. And even like, did they break up? Is Sophie Lloyd part of this? It almost doesn't matter because I'm sure all of these people are getting views or getting clicks or getting money. And there's a part of me that feels a little bit jaded about that, too. Like, I kind of loved celebrity love stories. You know what I mean? Like, um, but yeah, what do you think, Chris? Well, I think that um, Megan Fox is an interesting person for me, speaking from a British and kind of like maybe international perspective, in that I feel that, to my mind, and you know, granted that I just sort of admitted that I don't really know who Beyonce is. I, I do know who she, she was in that band, right? Um, Thank you so much for listening to <laughs> <laughs> this podcast, which has promptly been disbanded. <laughs> we are now replacing Chris with the remaining members of Destiny's Child. Who? Hey? <laughs> um. That's the band that she was in. <laughs> ah.
No, but I feel that Megan Fox is somebody who, like, yeah, her, her star is kind of like just on the wane elsewhere in the world. And I feel that she kind of like maintains a kind of like a celebrity culture within America. And I'm really surprised to hear people still talking about her. Although, admittedly, I might be in this kind of like weird bubble in which I'm just like not hearing about Megan Fox. But I think that, that kind of like it, it, it links to kind of what, what Rachel was saying about because I don't really care about Megan Fox. Probably the reason I don't care about her is because I feel I haven't read anything about her. But when we say we don't care about them, it's interesting to kind of parse what we mean about what I don't care about or I do care about this celebrity. I, I think that's fascinating because what I really meant earlier when I was talking about that is that she's so perfectly beautiful. There's such a symmetry to her, but uh, you know she hasn't uh, been in anything that really appeals to me. Um, so I think it's very much like this particular celebrity is somebody who seems to embody just this absolute perfect symmetry and without trying, created this public persona that's very much uh, trying to counter that mm. in a way that's still sexy with this like slightly goth, I'm slightly, you know, I'm the mm. hot girl in high school. Has she not got some kind of QAnon adjacent opinions? Oh, I don't know, actually. I, not that I know of, but that doesn't mean anything. She's an anti-vaxxer or something like that? Like, I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd have to look up Megan Fox and controversies surrounding Megan You just Google Megan Fox cancelled. <laughs> I agree with both of you. And I'm really realizing that maybe, and again, who knows if this is deliberate on their part or on their part of their publicity, like publicity teams or PR teams. Um they both have seem to have understood that at this point, celebrity culture is, is it pretty or is it not? And they're both very, very pretty. I don't think I really understood how I feel a strange sympathy towards Megan Fox. I think I do think that she's smart. And I think a part of me, yeah, there's a part of me that kind of wonders like, is it, would it be really hard to be quite smart? And then to kind of be like, I'm on a leash with this man who looks like a porcupine, a very hot porcupine. All these cameras are looking at me. I'm in a transparent dress. I know I look hot. I feel insecure. And when we break up inevitably, I will have to announce it. And that's going to be a whole news cycle. But this story really has been fascinating me. And I think it is just that I find it really fun to look at them and go, what is it like to be the two of you? Um, to be so, because they're also always, they're obsessed with each other in a way that, to your point, Rachel, really does remind me of Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton. They're, it's like they're obsessed as in like, I, I wish I could, I could find a way to enter your body and make your flesh my flesh. And even though that's not been ever my aim in a relationship, I think I'm fascinated by someone who does have that aim in a relationship. See, I'm less interested by the, these particular people than I am by your interest in them. Because I'm like, why? Because I, I do feel like we have so many of the same interests on so many levels. Right. And so I'm going, well, why is this slight parasocial relationship occurring in this case mm -hmm. and not for me? And what is this factor? And I don't know, you know, what that is. It's images. I really think it is. I think there's something about oh, I will say it's like art. <laughs> Sorry, I've just I've just found the uh, the controversy surrounding Megan Fox. Um, it all began when she compared director Michael Bay to Hitler during a 2009 interview, calling him a nightmare to work with. <laughs> Which famously all of Hitler's colleagues said the same thing. Oh, that guy was a nightmare to work with. <laughs> Terrible at delegating. Oh my god. <laughs> or too good at delegating. <laughs> 
depends on who you ask. Middle management at best is, I think, what most of his angle reviews said. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, good news, Megan Fox fans. Um, not an anti-vaxxer, as far as we know. <laughs> so, so I think that's uh, that's this week in love. Is that some of us really care about Megan Fox? Some of us uh, watch her with the watch her break up with the, the sociopathic impulse that you watch a you know car crash on the highway mm. as you speed by a beautiful and car crash. Some of us just want to take her down and will ignore the rest of the conversation, googling her on their phone until they find out. And now it's time for the love story. This week, we'll be talking about the love story between Emmanuel and Brigitte Macron. Before I get started, I was thinking about what question to uh, ask you guys to find out where you already are on this. I thought about kind of more salacious and gossipy ones, but then I actually thought probably a better one to ask is like, where do you guys just stand on Macron? Emmanuel, that is. Just as a figure, I found Macron very good looking, I think is a... That's not a political stunt. It is for me. (laughs) It's not that he can do no wrong. I definitely do disagree with him on several important political stances. But in terms of my overall attitude towards him, I'd say it's very positive. And in terms of my romantic attitude towards him, I'd say, yes, please. Okay. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> Are you a, just a yes, please, or a no, thank you? That's all we need. To me, I guess he's done nothing better nor worse than a lot of other politicians who have become presidents or prime ministers. I can't really kind of say, oh, Mangle's the worst president or the worst idea, but I think, yeah, I think in many ways his kind of worst crime as a politician is that he's a politician. For the record, I'm a bit of a, a Macron fanboy, but then I probably don't pay enough attention to the news to really realise probably all of the awful things that he's doing. You didn't read about when he killed all those dogs? Wait, that was Dr. Oz. <laughs> I messed it up. Okay, so this is the story of uh, Emmanuel and Brigitte, starting with a quote. Mummy. It's already perfect. (laughs) This is the quote. Mummy. I think I'm going to come. (laughs) That was Rachel. That's not the quote. The quotations ended after I said mummy. Mummy. There's a crazy boy in our class who knows everything. That is effectively the meat cute, I think, for Brigitte Macron and Emmanuel Macron. That was her daughter who was in the same class. No. That's true. I don't know how old they were at that stage, probably 11 or something like that. And Brigitte said, is he single? wild. So is that the first time that Brigitte had ever heard of Emmanuel? Yes. A number of years later, Emmanuel is 15 years old in this Jesuit high school in northeastern France in a town called Amiens. And he's going to perform in a piece of theatre. And the teacher who's taking the uh, the piece of theatre is a 39-year-old woman who's married and has been married for about 19 years. Uh, she's got three kids and she's the person who's 
going to direct the play that this young crazy boy who knows everything is in. Who knows really what happens, but 39-year-old Brigitte and 15-year-old Emmanuel, they just really hit it off, you know. And it's true that Emmanuel, by all accounts, is genuinely a crazy boy who knows everything, but also 39-year-old Brigitte. She's like the best teacher ever. Is, is that according to Emmanuel Macron? <laughs> no. No, the, <laughs> the, it's not just Emmanuel's testimony that she was the best teacher ever. She's basically Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society. <laughs> She's loved by everyone. It's just this litany of different students being like, oh, she, <laughs> she really touched me. <laughs> oh! I think that that's not a direct quote from the documentary. For To be fair to Brigitte, I don't believe that she was just having an affair with every single student who came her way. Right, that is not our allegation, nor is there any backing evidence for that. They start to, they start to just get to know each other, and she's blown away by him as an acting talent. He plays a scarecrow in... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. How well can somebody play a scarecrow that you're blown away? Blown away. What does a scarecrow do except stand? Exactly. Is this in the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> it's not the Wizard of Oz. Oh, what is it? Um, this, this, is France. this is This is this is a play by Corneille. <laughs> <laughs> Where the scarecrow represents the middle classes. <laughs> I mean, it, is, is that true? It probably is. No, I, I, I made that up. <laughs> I mean, it definitely, it's, it's definitely more on that line. It's not, because I always thought, because there's famous footage of Macron when he's 15 playing this scarecrow. There is? Link in the show notes. Link in the, yeah. Absolutely. And he's very good, I think. He has all of his, like, Emmanuel Macron charisma. But anyway, Brigitte sees the potential in this guy. And she's like, well, we should, uh, you know, the next uh, play that I put on, I want you to come and help me write it and work on the script. And so he does. And... So a relationship begins to form. She's she's very wealthy in the context of Amiens, quite a big figure in the context of Amiens. And she doesn't actually need to be a teacher. She's got family money and she's also married at this time to this guy who's a banker. But the banker is apparently incredibly boring. He's an incredibly dull guy. You shock me. <laughs> Can I ask... Are we supposed to understand that she was teaching because she just loves teaching? Like it was just something that she thought she was good at, she loved doing. Yeah, yeah, that's that she she just she just wants to teach. But en bref, she's uh she's like a real Madame Bovary kind of figure, an Emma Bovary figure, in the sense that she's in this provincial town, she's married to this guy who, according to one friend, was so dull he was a bit like lukewarm water. He wasn't even like Lukewarm, just a bit like it. That's how stupidly boring he is. I, I do feel for her. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's continue. I'll, I'll tell you how I feel about this. <laughs> That's fair. This is like a, you know, Mary Kay Letourneau uh, story. Right. You right. know, five minutes in being like, and she loved unicorns as a child. And yeah. you're like, oh, she's my favorite. And it's like, well, you haven't heard exactly. the stuff. Exactly. Um, yeah, so 20 years married to this a cup of lukewarm water. <laughs> and then she meets this effervescent 15-year-old Emmanuel. So, yeah, and they, they write the play together. They fall in love. As far as I'm aware, it's a love from both sides of the picture. They're both madly in love with one another. 
Obviously, it's scandalous, particularly in this relatively small town of Amiens. So they're open about it. Like, they are in an openly romantic relationship? Maybe not massively open, but it definitely, definitely Emmanuel's parents find out about it. But I did read uh, one profile that said that originally Macron's parents thought that he was dating her daughter and then realized that he was dating the mother. And they were writing a play together. They were writing a play together. It's a, it's a very small win for the morality of it, but she was never literally his teacher. I do think that matters. No, I don't think that's a small point. I think that's a really critical, yeah. So, yeah, they they wrote a play together. They properly fell in love. They start an affair. It comes up pretty quickly. And his parents are like, you're you're getting out of here. We're sending you away from Brigitte. You're going to Paris to, to study where this teacher doesn't have her claws in you. And he says to Brigitte before he leaves, I'm going to come back and I'm going to marry you. He went to Paris to go and study in all of the crazily difficult schools that they have here in France to get into all of the incredibly elite institutions. But he was actually back in Amiens every weekend seeing him. He just took the train back every Friday. He would just go back and he would just, like, 16, 17, 18, just spending his weekends with Brigitte. Meanwhile, her husband the lukewarm water he knew about this and he was very just accepting of it and he used to just go and work in Lille every weekend and Macron and Brigitte would just would be there and do whatever they did over the weekend um he he, he failed to get into normal soup with uh, no, the, no, no, no. yeah yeah he didn't manage it so for American listeners and listeners really anywhere outside of France, the École Normale Supérieure is part of kind of the French Ivy League of this, uh, like the set of what they call the Grande École, which are schools that you can only get into through these written examinations mm -hmm. that are incredibly competitive and often known as the kind of places where people like the young Macron go. Yeah, he so he failed to get into it, but he uh, he blamed being in love. He was like, I could, I just couldn't, my head couldn't focus on revising because I was so in love. See, also kind of unwittingly entering into a strange French theme, which is that I've met so many French people, including members of my in-laws' family, who have been like, I failed X exam because I was so in love. I'm kind of you know tongue in cheek, but not really. Like that is a legit excuse here. You know? Point is, though, is that Emmanuel was in love for a long time. I, I don't know what age you are when you have to do the normal soup exams. I assume 18? I think you can do it anywhere between 18 and 20 because you can have prépar, which is a preparatory class that a lot of students do. Uh, this is Rachel, who only has extremely salacious or extremely dull things to say. <laughs> Well, let's say he's crazy in love for... Uh, he's Chris has just caught him on the Wikipedia page for Beyonce Knowles. And, he, and we're so proud. He's crazy in love for five years. So so in love that he can't get into the normal soup. He tries twice, he can't do it. Eventually he, he has some degree of success. I haven't noted down what exactly. Macron is definitely successful at a certain point in his career. And we stand by that statement. <laughs> it still takes until 2006, though, for Brigitte and her first husband to get a divorce. So it's been, and if you consider that Macron and Brigitte, I think, meet in 93 or 92, and the affair is pretty public knowledge for 
all of that time, it takes... 13 years. More than 10 years, yeah. 13 years for them to uh, to, to actually get a divorce. So but can I ask, I, though, have they been together this whole time? As far oh as God. I could tell, it was just constant throughout this time and that he was absolutely steadfast and always loved her and she always loved him. From the age of 15 to 29, I think, when he gets married... Every time my heart starts to melt, you say the word 15, and then I have to kind of redo the whole process. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's like, oh, oh the spool's unspooled. I have to kind of, like, get back in. But yes, please. Correct. Yeah. There are so many levels of what's going on here, which is, I think, A, just the, the dynamic of a big age gap in general, which I, I think generally is a good thing to be suspicious of, because typically you do find it between men and girls. And that's very problematic on a lot of different power levels, you know, but at the same time, it's like in the States, there was Mary Kay Letourneau, who when we were growing up, who was, Chris, I don't know if this uh, made the news in England. I don't know who this is. So this is a high school teacher who had an affair with a student who was younger, who was 13 or 14, got pregnant by him. And she went to jail for a long time, but then they ended up together. He's also like a, he's a person of color which I think we can't really neglect because that also adds to the differentials in their power dynamic. Right. Well, she was she's a white woman. She's a white woman, sorry. And he is Latino. I don't remember where his family's from. But I think that it's not even the age gap in and of itself and in the absolute. It is what age are the two people when that age gap occurs, right? Like a 20 to 30 plus age gap, if we're talking about a 30-year-old and a 50 or 60-year-old, even if that is unusual, that's different, right? Like we are looking at two people who are adults. We might have questions. It might not be our particular cup of tea for ourselves, but it, it does make a difference. And I keep going back to the idea, even if he is a regulation hottie, and you know, Chris, I always believe your opinions about this. <laughs> I'm always like- He looks like a young Tom Cruise. As far as I'm aware, and as far as the news has said, like Brigitte Macron, who's been a teacher for most of those 20 years, has never fallen in love or seduced a student before. And I think that's the kind of thing which definitely would have come out if that had been the case, because that's absolutely what the press would have raked over. I'm presenting a narrative here. I don't know if it's the one that I necessarily believe in, but I'm going to present it, which is that she's living this fairly humdrum provincial life in which her husband's boring her. She's got a huge amount of potential and she's teaching the same class and clearly inspiring loads of students. And suddenly this person, and they are 15, but they come into her life and she's like, wow, here's somebody who speaks to me and who is so outside of this provincial space that I'm inhabiting and so different to my lukewarm glass of water who's my husband. There's something there and she she leaps at it. I'll tell you the truth about this story, which is that I really like them together, but I can't help thinking, you know, what if the genders were reversed? I'd have a very different opinion here. Okay, so let's talk about that specifically. What if, if the genders were reversed, how would we think? Gross. I think it makes you confront, it makes me confront a lot of my assumptions about power. You know, can you actually evaluate your attraction to a person beyond the power dynamics when there's such an age difference 
and there's already, particularly in the 90s, girls and everything to do with girl culture is continually, you know, condescended to and looked upon as this absolute joke versus an adult man and especially, you know, an adult white cis straight man who is the absolute epitome of who you want to be in this culture. How can this be just about the people? When you reverse the genders and you go, well, does this balance out? How can you balance power dynamics? This isn't something that's, you know, this isn't a straightforward calculus and I couldn't do it even if it were. This is a a more unusual situation or at least a less culturally fetishized and less culturally present situation. For me, the fact that it's been so long lived is a point in its favor that this is true love. But then it's like, who am I as an outsider to judge true love? You could say the same thing about Woody Allen and Sun Yi. And I don't think that that was a, an appropriate relationship either. But I do think that if the gender, if the genders were reversed, I almost think that we wouldn't be doing a podcast episode about this. Right? Like, it would be a story that we've seen time and time again. What I'm addressing is that I'm uncomfortable because I don't know how to kind of, I don't have like a pat set of logic to apply to this relationship, right? Because I can really, I keep going back to what you're saying about her, you know, her sterling reputation, which I have no doubt about, and her seeing potential. That it's been said that, like, in many ways, she recognized something that he didn't recognize in himself, which is incredibly powerful, right? And of course, that's, that's, that's something that I think that I would have really responded to at that age, too. I'm not saying in a romantic way, necessarily, but I think, you know, think about teachers who really felt like they believed in you, right? And take that to another, like, just a step further. You know, I, again, I feel strangely, I feel really uncomfortable describing that, but I, I can kind of see it from that perspective. In terms of power, obviously, Emmanuel is president, is leader. And yes, Brigitte is a white woman. She comes from money. But it's some. But I, I almost wonder if it's kind of a, a stabilization or an equalizing of power. For a while, her age was her kind of. She had more power than he did because of his youth. Now, because of his political power, it's almost like that's evened out a bit. And I don't really know how to explain this, but it feels to me like is there a way that perhaps her being older than him, if age and and I I do associate age with wisdom, of course, with more experience. Is it that with political power, he's kind of attained a certain um, equity with her, right? Like her age plus her education because plus her, you know, her knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, with his knowledge, his education, and now power in a, in a statecraft kind of way. And yet I think that equation gets even more complicated by the idea of women losing power as they get older through this, you know, supposed uh, loss of, say, very traditionally defined beauty. But sorry, I would say that, that in terms of power and her position in power, I don't. I think she has always been taking the sort of like traditional feminine role in any situation that she's been in by design. Like, I mean, like, yeah, she might have had sort of some kind of school teachery power in the situation with with Emmanuel. It, at, at school, but you know, she's very much has then gone on. I mean, he went on very quickly to become a successful banker in in Paris. And I just thought it was funny that she went from a lukewarm banker to like a manual banker. I, I just, I'm just saying that if I were him, I'd be like, I'm gonna be a juggler. I cannot, I cannot fall into the same trap as the first one. <laughs> I cannot. Emmanuel, go off. That is a flex. Did you read, though, that his uh, his primary ambition in life was to be a novelist? 
No. Yeah, yeah. He wrote an epic novel about set in Aztec America. It, um, me so it's called Babylon Babylon. Oh, oh, oh God, that was so hurtful. Babylon Babylon. Oh, but you know what? I wanted to also mention that I think it's interesting too. Like my impression is that Emmanuel could not have been president in the U.S. Right? There is simply, in my opinion, there's no way that we would. I mean. When JFK was elected, it was like, the first Catholic? <gasps> Clutch my pearls, right? I He's going to answer to the Pope. Yeah, exactly, right? I just, even the fact that it's still really uncommon for someone to have any sort of high political position in the U.S. if they're not married, if not married in a heterosexual relationship, it's always best. Divorce, ooh, it's a little, we're still getting used to that. And I think it's really interesting that my impression from reading newspapers, from reading the media here, is that overall there's not really a lot of, like, contention about the relationship, except when there's a way to make fun of Brigitte. Yeah. And I was thinking about when Rihanna came to visit the Elysee, and there were all these tweets, right? There were all these jokes. About- Rihanna. Oh, um, Rihanna. Uh, um, she was part of a band. Uh, 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 <laughs> badass. Um, but, I, but you know, like, I remember there were all these tweets, all these jokes. Of, and, you know, the punchline was always Rihanna's so hot. Brigitte's so old and so gross. And she's so jealous. And she's so afraid the manual's going to leave her. And I, and I do think it's interesting. That's an interesting dynamic. We will elect you. We will accept her, even if it's not like, an, as you said, Rachel, a, an official position being first lady. But you're still, you are still going to be our number one punchline, right? The minute we can... We will make sure to make fun of you. But yeah, you can stay here. We're not outraged. This is so interesting to me, though, this point at which a woman goes from being an object of desire to an object of derision. Okay, so she's 39. 39 can still be sexy. Can she be sexy to a 15-year-old? I guess, apparently, but that's kind of funny in itself. A 44-year-old being attracted to a 66-year-old is beyond a joke. There must be some kink or fetish. Did you see the the thing that she said? Did you read about how she told him that he had to run for president first time in 2017 because if he ran in 2022, then her face would let him down? That's it. I mean, it just absolutely kills me. And no matter how the relationship started, I think that what they have now is something that's very enviable. They do seem just so in love after a lot of time and speak just very lovingly to each other, show a lot of love in public. And that, for me, complicates the situation or any judgment I might make even more. He's 44 now. He's not a child. And this is somebody that he's chosen over and over again. And that continual choosing to me is something that's very moving. That's something I find in the relationships that move me most. I don't know really what to do with it. I think we're being pretty unfair to how attractive she is, though, as well. Like, because I think that I think that she is still attractive, and I think that arguably having the love, the known love of a younger man, helps that uh, perceived attractiveness. But also because there's a sort of a certain like, I mean, there's a huge amount of elegance to the way she dresses. There is she's still very good looking, and I think it is that her presence just almost reevaluates kind of what can be just considered to be attractive. And as far as I'm aware, there actually hasn't been that much press about her being ugly or anything like that. Like, 
No, She's not about old. being ugly, about being old. And plastic surgery and things like that, right? Like, whatever, not that that matters, but I think that's more the jokes. Yeah, the jokes are more about like, what is she augmented and things like that. But I want to interject here, which is that, we, you know, we were talking earlier about um, Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox and, you know, whether or not we care about um, a certain celebrity versus another. And I think my jadedness comes in when it comes to any sort of public relationship, because even just in amongst our friends, every relationship the way that it presents just even in our friend group versus what's really going on inside is so unbelievably different. Whether or not it's uncomfortable, political romantic relationships are part of a brand. They are part of how we perceive and they are sold, right? Like with the Obamas, Michelle and Barack, whatever you think about the relationship, and I'm not here saying that anything, you know, I have no gossip, right? I'm not going to Rupert Everett this. If I knew something, I would tell you immediately. <laughs> Michelle and Barack are now a brand, whether or not we want to believe that, right? Like they have their own individual brands and they have a collective brand. So all I want to say here is that with Brigitte and Emmanuel, they've, they, it's true. They have chosen to stay together for this long and that matters. I guess for me, I am always going to be pretty cynical about any sort of public romantic relationship in that, not that I believe that it's a sham or anything like that. I don't really find it moving because yeah, they need to stay together now, right? Like even if they hate each other, which I don't think they do, or I don't know if they do, at this point, to leave her now or for her to leave him would be, I think, a concession of sorts. It would be a defeat. They know that. They are smart people. There is image craft to this. And that's not, and again, I'm not saying that specifically just about them. That is anyone who is in the public eye to the extent that they are. When you are with a partner and you've officially declared them, you've been together for decades, that matters. And people assume, and then if you leave them or if there's a divorce, whether or not we want to believe that, even on a like private level, divorce is still considered a failure. So at this level, it's even more of a failure. Like, I don't know. So all of this is to say that, like, I just want to kind of put that out there that I feel perhaps a little bit lukewarm about their romantic love. But the whole point is that there's been so much that the French public has been willing to accept that I think comes from even as far back as the Ancien Regime, when you had these official, like, mistresses in title who would have the title of mistress and just be accepted as that's the woman that the king wants to fuck versus the queen, who is a political ally. And so, you know, there's been tons of stuff with Mitterrand. I don't know about Chirac. I'm sure there is. With Hollande, you know, he left his wife several times for his mistress, which, as I was saying before we started this podcast, is just the epitome of this. When you marry the mistress, there's an immediate job opening. Uh, <laughs> these things would never pass in America. And yet the thing that people have had the biggest reaction to is this age gap between what are now two consenting adults who have been in a relationship of many decades. I want to point out that it technically was not a legal relationship at the time. Under the law, a relationship with a student who was 15 or over during the time when the age of consent was 15 or over was punishable by uh, three years in prison. So she could have gone to prison for it, uh, what she did. But then I suppose on the technicality that she wasn't literally his teacher that doesn't make a difference but but i don't know i'm not sure i know the french well enough to say like oh it's just the ick factor or if it's how close she got to breaking the law and the mores of the time my my feeling is that for people who do kind of use the mores or the law it's really just to cover the ick factor i don't actually think that most people who have problems or objections with this relationship are really like well according to the code you know <laughs> I feel like that's pretty close to the dinner party conversation, but that's not what they actually believe. Do either of you think that Macron has been unfaithful to Brigitte at any point? 
Or is she the only person who he has ever slept with? I think they were probably on and off again in his early 20s, would be my guess. This has been actually covered in a surprising amount of secrecy for the time period in which it should happen, which is the mid to late 90s. My guess would be that in Paris, he sorry, sampled the goods was my expression, but I'm... I mean, that would, that would be your guess, but what's that based on? That's based on somebody that hot in Paris. That's all. That's that's my entire guess. What about you, Neff? My feeling is that they probably, I think, have both have slept with other people, but always try to think about why I think this, but I think they probably have always told each other when they've slept with other people. I think they're both also pretty careful, and I think they've had to be careful because of the nature of the relationship, because of how they met. I don't see these as two people who would have a wild affair with someone else. I think that if they did... So you're saying that the woman at the age of 39 who slept with her 15-year-old student would not have a wild affair with somebody? Not after they were together, because I really do think that after they were together, it was like, we're we're putting on a path to success. And I and I actually think that's a, that's part of their consenting relationship. I, I'm not at all saying that, like, she was pushing him or anything like that. I think that, to me, a big part of their attraction to each other and a big part of their relationship is mutually wanting him to succeed. Mutually wanting him to get to the top. I think they're both, again, eventually or mainstream attractive people. I don't think they haven't not slept with other people, but I just think they always were aware of it and always and were always very careful about it. After they went forward on this joint venture, they were not going to risk it. They were not going to fuck it up with an unfortunate, like, you know, Paris match photo of one of them being wasted and like hair askew some random boulevard. I just don't see that. I think it should probably be addressed is obviously the uh, the rumours about Emmanuel Macron being gay and where do you think those came from and whether you think there is any truth to them or not. This is a, a very ageist and a misogynistic thing about who could be attracted to an older woman. And I think it's absolute bullshit. For me, the two of them seem absolutely in love. And, you know, and I'll say um, clearly, I have less bought into the romance of this relationship, even though I have bought into the relationship, but as more of a calculated maneuver on both ends. That being said, I completely agree with Rachel. All of the rumors, all of the hearsay about him being gay, I think is just a direct attack against her. And I think it's also because a lot of the allegations, rumors about how he keeps up his personal appearance, the budget, alleged angle budget for his makeup, which I have read about. I think all of those things really lend themselves to a really fucked up narrative about like, yeah, that's what gay men do. Gay men are superficial and they love makeup and that might be true, but so so does everybody else, frankly. And it's also not our place who gives a shit, right? Like if he is gay, good for him. And again, I actually do think that whatever they are doing, it is consenting. They both know what they're doing. That's my thing is if he's gay and she doesn't know it, that's an issue. If it's a situation in which he's gay and she's aware of it and they're in a consensual relationship, then they can each evaluate the benefits. That's not for us to decide. So I want to say from the research that I've been doing, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever to suggest that he might be gay. It's entirely been fabricated by the press. It is reinforced by the fact that I am very attracted to him. (laughs) Historically, this is a good indicator. (laughs) I also think that this idea of uh, Brigitte Macron as his his beard somehow is 
so ridiculous as well. I mean, you know, the idea that he would come up with like a beard and this would be the story. <laughs> also, like, pick somebody who's not going to be a story. You'd pick Lea Seydoux. Or- and Lea Seydoux, if you want to come on the podcast and talk about maybe being approached by his people, we'd love, we don't, well, some of us love you. Anyway, come on board. <laughs> so I did have one more question, which is slightly in relation to a conversation that I had last night with somebody about this podcast. I was in a bar and I got talking to a friend of a friend and I mentioned that I was going to be talking about Brigitte and Emmanuel Macron and their relationship. And she, being French, was like, huh, well, yeah, it's disgusting, but that's not the most disgusting thing about him. Well, she then reeled off a litany of all of his policies. Which... Oh, political stuff. Okay, okay fine. <laughs> However, I wanted to ask, how important do you think this relationship is to the person who he is and the state of France right now. Well, see, to me, the fact that he wanted to make her first lady tells me that it's not that important and he wanted to center it more and that, in fact, people didn't want that. And again, we can't know whether that's because of her or because of the idea of a person and also a woman in in that position. Honestly, like I was trying to do a little bit of research just to get some background because all I knew was just really her fashion, which is, doesn't say a lot about me, um, and the age difference before this pod. And in English, the articles are all very focused on those two exact things and not at all on policy. I don't know what her beliefs are. I don't know if she agrees with her husband. I know that she's there to support him in a way that one could call old-fashioned, different on the presidential level in terms of whatever my husband believes I believe. Yeah, I don't think it's actually that important. I do think it's important in the way that we talk about women and aging and power dynamics all in very different ways. And I don't think we've come to any conclusions or anything novel here tonight, but I do think that we've had to face some of these questions that don't have these clear moral answers. Yeah, you know, and just to go off of that, like I think really my prevailing notion is that no matter pushing aside all personal questions about the dynamics of the relationship, which of course we are not privy to, I do think that both of them are dedicated to his success, which is their success. And so I don't think it's that Brigitte does not have her own ideas. And I don't and I know you're not that's why you're not what you're saying either, Rachel, or that she doesn't have her own political views, or that she might differ from Emmanuel's position, but I think she is aware that wrongly or rightly, and I think largely wrongly and wrongheadedly, she's become a heat scorer, right? Like if she big air quotes like steps out of line or does something controversial, whatever that might be, they're both highly aware that that reflects badly on him. And so in a strange way, I actually think that one of her most powerful contributions to his presidency and to his political power and to thus to their political power is by, by my estimation, deliberately leaving a vacuum, right? Like leaving an emptiness. Her silence is her contribution by design. She does not want to distract from what he does. This is obviously a team, right? And building off of that, I think as well, the fact that usually the wife of the head of state does not 
have a job. That's the tradition, right? I mean, either she's first lady as in the United States, or she's just there to support her husband. And the fact that Brigitte had this real, it seems, vocation to be a teacher and to bring literature and theater to the next generation and has stepped away from that. She seems like somebody who is not afraid of making waves, who would have done that. But I think having had her husband as a student and continuing to teach in this position, whereas, say, Jill Biden, for example, still teaches. And nobody, people think that's wonderful and laudable. And so do I, for that matter. But I think that in this case, it seems to me that Brigitte really does have this vocation, but has deliberately stepped aside from it because she knows how that would look. She knows what the students would be thinking. She knows what the parents of the students would be thinking. I wondered if we could round things off just by saying, Brigitte and Emmanuel Macron, do we approve or disapprove? <laughs> and I, I, I will only take one word answers. Approve. Grudgingly. Parenthesis. Yes. <laughs> approve. <laughs> Love heart. No, nobody follows Chris's directions, as you can see. I did. I gave one word. If- yeah. You were supposed to say approve or disapprove, and you said yes. He said one word answers only. He said one word, and I did something hashtag clever. So I'm the rule follower, and I'm the bad guy. I see how this goes. And so the podcast ends. Tune in next week to see. But guess who's the editor? This has been The Love Story. Now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. As always, we're basing this on the characters from this week's love story. It was my turn to pick the characters from the stories this week. And I have picked one character from the story and extrapolated from there. So the Mary Fuck Kill this week is a series of French rulers. So we're going to begin with Napoleon. The premier, so Napoleon the first. There was a Napoleon the third, if you'd believe it. But we're not going to get into that as much as <laughs> you know I'd like to. <laughs> then there's Charles de Gaulle. And that can be either the president, uh, the founder of the Fifth Republic, or the airport. Perfect. As you choose, because NAF does prefer uh, na- an abstract noun mm-hmm. for romantic relationships. Thank you. And uh, the third is, of course... Emmanuel Macron, the Tom Cruise slash Ethan Hawke lookalike from the 90s, who is now the annoyingly centrist president of France. So, Naf, take it away. Who are you going to marry, fucking kill? So, right away, I'm going to kill Charles de Gaulle, the airport and the leader. Listen, we don't need that colonial's bullshit over here, and we don't need an airport that is impossible to navigate. Half of it's closed. My podcast about airports that work and don't work, forthcoming. So kill that bitch right away. Um, We are fucking Emmanuel. Listen, I have my reservations. You're going to marry Napoleon. I mean, that's the real question here, right? Here's why. I... I love a man who will write letter upon letter upon letter, beseeching me to remember him as he goes off to war. I'm always going to love a short king. 
who has a mission that I may not agree with, but it's us against the world. And do I love an island? Yes, I do. I know they didn't go to the island together. It's not a big deal. You would stick with him on St. Helena, basically. But yeah, but I think that we'd have a great time for a while. And I love a maverick, you know, like I love someone who's just going to go against the grain. And I understand that me opposing Charles de Gaulle and colonial on a kind of colonial criteria is not helping my case to marry Napoleon. I do understand that Egypt, I hear you. Hashtag we hear you. But that's how I feel right now. Right now, the inventor of the baguette, my short king, Napoleon, I marry you. I kill Charles de Gaulle, and I fuck Emmanuel. And that's that on that. I'd also like to say that height-wise, which is not necessarily what we should go off mm-hmm. of, but height-wise, this does make sense. Yes. Uh, Naf is- uh, Extremely tall. Extremely tall and- uh, Gargantuan. Has, but uh, Napoleon is, the measurements are not exact. They say somewhere between 5'2 and 5'6. A good, I, f- I feel like a good pairing. Yes. Charles de Gaulle was six foot four at a time when the average height of the French people I heard was 5'3", oh. which I got to check that reference because that doesn't seem right. That's my height and yeah. I am not big. And that's heightest on his part. How dare you? Yeah. How dare you literally tower over your own people? That's not what, that's not a quality. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Whereas Emmanuel Macron seems mm-hmm. very much uh, in terms of height what he is in politics. He's centrist. <laughs> I have not heard anything uh, saying he's very tall or very short. I don't know his height, which tells me it's boring. Um, there we go. Christopher, to you. I have one question about uh, what Naf said. Napoleon invented the baguette. Can I hear more about that? Now, I do need to... <laughs> Wait, I, I want ties to the Napoleon complex. <laughs> if there's not a penis in this answer, I will be disappointed. <laughs> I understand the baguette. That goes for all of my answers. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course. And that I so respect that. Now I understand the baguette, of course, has become a UNESCO World Heritage um object, um, matter in France. And so I don't want to be disrespectful. However, there is a story that Napoleon and his brilliance, my king. Um, God, no, ugh, not my king. <laughs> Ooh. Well, you know, for the purposes of this exercise. He wanted them to be able to have food that they could easily access with their hands. And so he was like, what if we had a piece of bread that you could easily stick into your back pocket and you could just pull it out when you're hungry in during battle? And that's how he invented the baguette. Any other questions? That's that's the one piece of information I'm definitely going to go home with. Um, the idea of them all breaking the top off the baguette like I do when I'm walking home from the boulangerie. And that is really the moral of the story. I stand by this. Don't check on Google. My it's question is how many soldiers uh, mistook their baguettes for their swords and uh, how much of this led to the English farcical tradition of Monty Python. <laughs> Or, or you know the, the pointed stick. defeat at Waterloo. I think is ah yeah. <laughs> oh, no uh, this gun is a baguette. But it is again. It's there. It's in the books. Christopher, uh, marry Macron, fuck Napoleon, kill Charles de Gaulle, mm. um, and I will tell you for why. <laughs> that is what we want to know on this podcast. I just uh, I, I, I the, a lot of my friends uh, make fun of me. Um, I, I really like Macron. I think he's great. Um, I mean, I don't agree with everything that he stands for, but basically, uh, you know, and, and, and over the years, 
I'm not going to deny that my sort of appreciation for him as a political figure has morphed into something more. Yeah, I'm saying I've I've, I've dreamt uh, I've dreamt of waking up in the morning. Me and Emmanuel were sort of in bed together. He'd probably get out of bed first. He's there. He's probably making coffee in his white boxes and his white t-shirt, and uh, he he comes to bed. And I'm like, ah, oh, thanks, thanks, Manu. And then he, <laughs> And he's and then I don't know you know he's like uh the premier Manu uh, to you it's uh, Monsieur le Président <laughs> and then we catch each other's eye and I know that he's joking but you know he just turns away and then he goes off to rum France for another day and do all that cool shit that Emmanuel Macron does on a day to day basis <laughs> Macron and I could have a very tender and stimulating relationship together um, which is essentially all you want in a marriage and in terms of fucking napoleon well i i mean this is just coming to me right now but i guess there'd be some kind of power play going on i would insist that he was the bottom yeah and then i mean and just the idea of fucking napoleon what a cool thing to have uh, what a what a notch in your bedpost that would be and so there's a, there's a complex dynamic there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he already had Josephine, who was kind of that, but um, but you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't respond to any of his letters. Um, I'd be very cold to him when he came back from campaign. Uh, and then kill Charles de Gaulle. I mean, do I have any? Do I have strong opinions about Charles de Gaulle? Not as much as French people do. Is all I would say. <laughs> French people have a lot of opinions about Charles de Gaulle. Um, some wish he came back. I, I mean, from everything I've read, he was an arsehole. Um, like, you know, just on a personal level, I can imagine him being insufferable to be around. Um, the airport, I kind of like the airport, actually. (laughs) There are a lot of things that I like that I wouldn't fuck, though. Um, or marry, for that matter. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say if it was between wiping Charles de Gaulle Airport off the map or fucking Napoleon, then it's a no-brainer. But it turns out I can have both. You can have both and you don't have to go to Orly, which is a real pain in the ass. Or worse yet, Beauvais. Come on. <laughs> oh, I'm not taking an easy jet out of there. I will take the train. <laughs> um, for me, this is, I will marry Emmanuel Macron in a fucking heartbeat. I think the thing with him is that that the, the reason that we've both chosen to marry him is that he is a bit of a blank canvas upon which you can project, you know, your romantic sensibilities. He's handsome. He's, uh, I don't want to say around our age. He's older than us. He's for sure older than us. But uh, he's you know, uh, in the prime of his life. He's, uh... Where is Napoleon and Shelter Gold about dead, obviously? <laughs> We're talking about actual states. It's two corpses versus a living human. And that's no choice at all. On the airport, which is still in fine functioning order. It's very good for an airport of its age. In fact, they've just redone it a few years ago, and it looks pretty good. <laughs> um, uh, fuckable? I don't know. But we'll get there. I'm going to marry Emmanuel Macron. I think he's sexy. I think he's uh, good at his job. I think he has an incredible amount of charisma. And I don't think you often find that with somebody who's very loyal 
to the person they've committed to. I think often charisma uh, opens up possibilities that uh, is very that are very hard to turn down. Uh, see every previous. French president slash king. Of course, ironically, you would be asking him to leave his wife. No, in this scenario, this is he's single. He's single. Yeah. So the, these people are all available. No, I'm not saying she's died. Maybe they never met. I don't know. Okay, so but one of the qualities about Macron that you like, his loyalty to Brigitte, doesn't exist in this universe because she doesn't exist. This is a this is an alternate timeline in which I understand this current timeline, but I'm slipping into the other. Obviously. Oh, oh what age are you marrying him? He is I don't know, early 30s. Early 30s. He's early 30s. And so I think so I think he's, you know, had his time to his so is wild oats as my prairie ancestors would have said. Um but uh you know, is ready to make a commitment. That's why you'd marry Emmanuel Macron. And then you would fuck Charles de Gaulle. Fuck Charles de Gaulle um, because of his passion. The absolute, like, uh, intensity with which he makes his speeches to the free French during World War II. This is, he's he's such a strange character because he's 6'4 at a time when most French people are about a foot shorter than that. And uh, he, according to the biography I just read, doesn't know what to do with his body. I would like to teach him what to do with his body. I can show him that. <laughs> and like, I feel like Macron doesn't have the intensity. He wants it. He doesn't have it. That's okay. I want to be married to that. The intensity, though, yeah, like that really interests me on a sexual level. With Napoleon, it's like it goes too far. It's too intense. And it's not about me. And I feel like he, you know, he's he's off always on these campaigns. I'm in name Empress, which I'm not going to lie, I don't hate that. But Empress Rachel, it's not great. But I don't know. If I'm time traveling back, I, I pick a different name. Um, in French class, my name was Jacqueline. So I guess uh, in uh, 19th century French, I'm Empress Jacqueline, which doesn't sound right, but... Uh, we're not going to worry about it. You're killing him anyway, so Empress Jacqueline is yeah, never, um, never going to exist. Don't think too hard about my romantic preferences. I don't understand them myself. But thank you so much for joining us today on We'll Always Have Paris. That was this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the absolutely bonkers Nancy Mitford and her equally bonkers novel, The Blessing, in which a demon child tries to ruin his parents' lives in post-war Paris. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Music